Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is anthropologist Joy Hendry, one of the UK's most respected experts on Japanese culture, who literally wrote the textbook on understanding Japanese society. Joy, we love your work, and our only complaint would be that we noticed that in the most recent fifth edition of the book, the chapter on the importance of river cruises was shortened by a couple of pages. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. On this week's show, remember the good old days when people left their front doors unlocked and they used to let academics do fieldwork in Japan? Joy does. We'll talk a bit about the effect of the foreign entry ban on academia and a lot about the decades Joy has dedicated to expanding the West's understanding of Japan. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is a traditional Christmas-themed cruise, but adopting the traditions of the Scandinavian Norse people. We've been assured that the winter solstice tradition of burning wood every day until the twelfth night, in anticipation of the return of the sun, will be happening on board, and passengers are reminded to bring their own wood and not use wood they find on the boat. Also, I'll check in with that traditional Japanese music in English river cruise initiative that started up last year. It's proving to be surprisingly popular with both foreigners who like Enka music and... Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. It's proving popular with both of the foreigners who like Enka music. All that and more. But first, today, we're going to start with the news. Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? Thanks for asking. Um, many of the academics that we follow on Twitter or students who are hoping to arrive in Japan in the near future are pretty upset about the entry ban and how it affects their scholarships. Um, and we also saw a video from MOFA this week imploring people to take online classes and a big backlash to that video. <laughs> It was a really weird video, wasn't it? It was basically him saying, please, please still be interested in Japan. We're not going to help you at all to get here. Yeah. We're not even going to bother making these online classes, but still, we're waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. People did not take it very well. Uh, but since we've got Joy here, and Joy, you've done so much field work in Japan over the years, I was wondering how you've been watching this play out and, and what your thoughts are about how this will affect academia. Yeah, well, I... I, in the short term, I feel very sorry for the students who are due to come and people who have got had visas which aren't now being permitted. But over the long term, no, I've I've been going to Japan for some fifty years now. And when I first went, getting a visa wasn't easy either. But we managed somehow to do it. And the people who are older than me, some one man Rondor, who became very famous for his work in Japan, mm. would have come during the Second World War and couldn't. And that was a lot longer than we've had so far with COVID. <clears throat> so what he did was he set about reading Japanese, learning to read Japanese and reading as much as he could. So I talked to him before I first came and he said, I was stuck. I was a young man. I was 18. I couldn't go to Japan. So I just read and read and mm -hmm. read as much as I could. So perhaps I could encourage, I mean, I've been supporting the pleas to the government to extend the student the, the grants to the students who haven't been able to come. But also let's say that in the long term, do do watch the video, do do online courses. There were no online courses for Rondor. He just had to read books and study the right. kanji. And he did incredibly well. Is there something to be said, though, specifically for your field of anthropology, that you just can't do it unless you're, you're there 
observing. Yes, yeah, that's true. And the anthropology students are in a particular pickle because they can't. But he, he was an anthropologist. Rondor was an anthropologist. Mm. And he eventually came and spent a year in a village and wrote about that and other things too. Um, and I'm in touch with some of the anthropology students who can't get here and talking to them about how they can get further information before they, mm. they do eventually travel. Well, I understand people feel very, very passionately about this. Um, but I have seen a lot of, of what I consider pretty close to doomsaying on the internet where people are saying, well, this is the end for Japan. People will never uh, forgive Japan for the way it's treated them. And this is going to have ramifications 10 years down the line. Um, you know, when you don't have a generation of people who understand Japan in the military, in policymaking, in economics. Um, but I do think there are already some some really good initiatives that are coming out of it. Ali, did you see um, some of our former guests like Chelsea Schneider and Lindsay Santos uh, and even uh, Dr. Curtis? They're, they're doing this kind of like uh, doc share where if somebody's overseas and they need access to Japanese resources, they'll pull it and scan it and provide it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought this up, Bobby, because I'm absolutely livid as a copyright lawyer myself. Um, I think they should be thoroughly <laughs> ashamed of themselves. Uh, <laughs> I had the opposite uh, no, response. I was really excited. I was super excited because, Joy, we get a lot of academics on this show. And so usually we're talking to people who are very well versed in Japan. And Ali and I do all our research on Twitter. And now they have to do all their research on Twitter, too. <laughs> But it, I mean, obviously, I'm being, I'm being facetious. Like, I think I think it's mad that like you can write for yeah. a journal and still not get access to that same journal. But but it, it does seem that like in in times like this, in times of crisis, you know, you you do get uh, these kind of innovations, which will probably stick. Whatever connections are being made online are going right. to be really strong, and it's going to mean whoever eventually does get to Japan, uh, you know, that they're going to have stronger friendships and they're going to do even better work. So I, I mean, look, I, I too, if I was in that position. Uh, when I went to Japan to do my postgraduate research, I wouldn't be there now. I would have gone. Do you know what? I, I can't. I can't take this risk. I can't stall for another two years. I can't afford it. I would have done something else, and this podcast wouldn't have happened. So you know, that's 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 how bad things could have got, Bobby. This podcast may never have been born. Uh, <laughs> but I do. I do. I do like the fact that Joy is somewhat optimistic uh, about the fact that you know think, things might not be. Things might not be too bad. Joy, in your decades of experience of, of teaching about Japan, how much has the internet changed somebody's ability to uh, to connect with a country? Hugely. It's um, a, an immeasurable amount because it just wasn't there before. So <clears throat> you had to be in Japan to do the research that I did. And you, you couldn't be there with Japan. I mean, actually, I traveled to Japan by ship. And back in those days, the first time I went, there were ships going from Brazil to Japan, taking Japanese people settling Brazil to and fro. And I jumped on such a ship in, I think I caught it in Los Angeles and went to San Francisco and Hawaii with mostly Japanese passengers. And I wasn't in Japan yet, but I learned a huge amount by being on that ship. And, you know, there were other ways in which you could learn about. I mean, I used to do Twitter, but I gave it up. <laughs> Very wise. And if you could have your time again, do you wish that you could have started your career now in the 21st century? Or are you pleased that you no, were one of the old school no, ones? No, I, to... I loved being able to go and stay in the village for a year and get there by ship. I, I think I would be lost if I had to start now because so much there's so much more you have to do remotely anyway 
whether mm-hmm. you're, you know, there was nothing you could do remotely back then. So living there and being there was just what I wanted, you know, what I needed. And and to be able to have started at that time, you've gotten to witness all of the different changes throughout the years in this field. Um, one of my personal favorites, awful segue, is that the coffee has gotten better. <laughs> Bobby! There was, no, <laughs> there was no coffee back then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Coffee's yeah. appeared and got better. Bobby, that's very good. I'm very proud of you. That's right. We've had some people that have bought us coffees in order to support the show. R.M. Holdsworth bought us more coffees and then became a member after we joked last week about how one coffee would be disappointing if it was from a lawyer, but it was a tremendous right. gesture from someone who does digital content. And I think what happened here, Ali, I think we accidentally <laughs> negged her. Right. Did we kind of guilt her into doing this? Uh, well, thank you very much. We really, we really appreciate it. Yeah. As a reminder, people that become a member not only get access to the show early when we can, they also get a discount on merch and they get access to our bonus bits, our extras, which is between 20 and 30 minutes of chat that didn't make the show. So we hope that you uh, enjoy that. Uh, Pixel Maven became a member. Thank you very much. Tom Ford became a member and uh, said, please remember to balance the Japan slamming with some positive now and then. Why do you live there? Bobby, that's a question for you. Uh... Well, this is something that is a good point. I would like to direct you to episode 97, entitled Sometimes We Like Japan. And I'm wondering if he's trying to suggest that somehow one episode out of 111 episodes doesn't constitute a proper balance. <laughs> right. And also, you're only mean to, to people that you love. Isn't that right, Bobby? Quiet, quiet, Ollie. Um, but, but it is a good point. I think it's something we'd like to be aware of as we move into the next year when we start our new season. And, uh, I think there's a great, great segment coming up in our holiday episode that really does kind of get into interesting and positive Japan history that Tom, you'll probably want to check out. Thank you for joining. Great. And a good plug for the Christmas episode, which is going to be released next week. It's a bumper bonus episode with some of our favorite past guests and a past guest that we hate. Uh, And uh, we hope that you enjoy it before we take uh, a long Christmas break. So Bobby, with that, shall we jump into Soap Talk? Bobby Judo, what's in the Soap Talk this week? This week in the Soap Talk, uh, we'd like to talk to Joy about her book, An Affair with the Village. Joy, there's so many things that we could talk to you about. Um, You've put out so much work about Japan, but the most recent one is An Affair with the Village about your time in Kurotsuchi. Before we start to talk about it, could you just give our listeners an idea of what the book is? Yes, it's the background information about all the research I did in uh, Japan in one village in Kyushu. And I uh, went there to do my fieldwork as a doctoral student way back and uh, 45 years back. In fact, the <laughs> secret is out. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, lived there for a year and I went back over all of those years from time to time to follow up the research, to take my children, to do things there that I was doing elsewhere. And um, the book is this, the background information about how an anthropologist does that research and what is involved in the relationships that you build up, how it's Mm. not always good, how sometimes, and I called it an affair with the village because it's a bit like a love affair that, you know, sometimes is you feel that you're slightly illegitimate in somebody else's society asking questions. Um, But on the other hand, you know why you're doing it, but Mm -hmm. to explain to people why you're doing it is part of the problem. 
So it, it talks about the, the good and the bad and it puts it in the language of having an affair with the village. One of the things that struck me while I was reading it um, is that I was recognizing all of these things that are very, very familiar all of the, the kind of getting to know you stuff, getting to learn about a new culture stuff that you, you have when you live in Japan. And it was super familiar, but the way that you were approaching it was in a very different way than someone as, a, as just a foreign resident here does. So what goes into your approach when you're thinking about how to study the social life of a community? Well, the thing that we used to do in those days, and it's much harder to do now, is you get yourself totally immersed in the society you're interested in. So you lived, I lived there in a house in just across the border, actually, in the next village, but I was in two villages. And uh, the first thing I did was go to my neighbor and ask what did I do with my rubbish. So I needed to get totally involved in everyday life. And I had no one to guide me. I did have a professor in... Tokyo and another one in uh, Fukuoka, but they weren't there very much. The one in Fukuoka did a wonderful thing. Did you start the foreigners need to be told what to do with their rubbish thing? Are you, <laughs> are you the first are you ever the foreigner? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, well, you divide it. I mean, look, this is 45 <laughs> years ago. He said you divide it into what you can burn and what you can't burn. There was none of all the rest of the categories back then yeah yeah did you respond with what i'd always say which is yeah which is the joke that uh was the start of japan's actual approach to handling mo and aigomi yeah, yeah right exactly <laughs> exactly um and so when you're when you're in a village and you kind of know that you're gonna have to publish work about them and sometimes it might not might not be positive does that conflict you when you're dealing with people who you've befriended no you don't the, an anthropologist doesn't make judge well shouldn't make judgments about people you're learning how those people live and what they do with their lives mm. you're not putting your um moral system on them you're learning what their moral system is so well, you you need to see what you think is um uh happening and describe it but you right. don't divide it into good and bad I mean, you might from your own personal perspective, but it's not what you're doing. Not making moral judgments and dividing things into good and bad is, that answers the question of what's the difference between an anthropologist and the average foreign resident in Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and that unique skill of dividing things into good and bad, you got from day one when you asked about what's in the trash. <laughs> uh, as, someone that, as someone that knows nothing about anthropology do you go do you choose a village or do you choose an area based on something that you're looking to find out or do you go and wait and see okay so a bit of both you i went to several places in japan having read lots of japanese anthropology by the way because japan is full of anthropologists there are almost as many as american anthropologists and I read what they'd done and I consulted Japanese anthropologists. My tutor in Oxford knew nothing about Japan. So I started doing that in Japan. And the professor in Fukuoka, Matsunaga-sensei, he took uh, me to that area because he knew I was interested in marriage. That was my subject, how people meet and what, how they get married and so on. And he knew that people were getting married there. It was quite a good area because young people were coming back and not all staying away, as they sometimes do from the country. Mm -hmm. Still do. I did then and still do. And uh, he had done field work there, so he knew people. So he took me to meet the people that I needed to know, like the head of the village, somebody who rented me a house, the local MP, people like that. 
Um, and by the way, I did, there's one more thing I asked my neighbour, and I'll tell you this because it's really important for anybody going to live in Japan to do research, whatever mm-hmm. their subject, is my neighbour said, we need to go and introduce you to the neighbours and say what you're doing here because they won't know you. And don't bring a big present because then they'll feel obliged. Just take something small. So I took a few postcards to all the people in, in the little Tonarigumi, my neighbourhood uh, area, and I said what I was doing there and who I was. And that many students who come back from Japan having done research in libraries never did that. And they said, I never met my neighbours. And I said, well, mm. did you go and introduce yourself? And they said, no. So I'm saying that now because I thought it might be useful for future people who aren't anthropologists but who go and live in Japan if they are allowed to get there after all. The other thing that struck me um, is, is you've said, you know, this was 45 years ago. Uh, this was in 1970s. And starting in the 1970s, I have an understanding of when that was, but in terms of how long ago that was in in Japan's westernization, there were moments in the book that I, I was just kind of dumbstruck when you'd say something like, this is when Japan was being introduced to bets. And I would go, was it that was the 70s that long ago for Japan? Actually, my next-door neighbour, the one uh, with the rubbish, and my next, those next-door neighbours are my very best friends in Japan. They're my family, so I go and stay the with rubbish them. Ones, yeah. The rubbish I'm ones, yeah. The rubbish ones. I call them the rubbish people because <laughs> uh, their children have grown up knowing me. But anyway, yeah. um, the, uh, they had a table in their kitchen when I arrived, and they sat around the table. By the time I left, they'd taken the table out and they were sitting on the floor around their table. So people were trying things out. The bed thing was because when people were getting married, they would be given a whole lot of, um, you know, things to bring with them to their new house. And sometimes beds would appear, although most people slept on a futon on the floor, on the tatami. Mm. And still do. I've never slept in... Actually, that's not quite true. That family does now have a bed that the parents sleep in, but everybody else, we sleep on the floor on the tatami on Putong. While we're on the topic, I might end up cutting this question out. You know, people always say that because of Japanese houses and having paper-thin walls and families living together, that's why the Love Hotel was spawned. A village as as remote as Yame presumably didn't have love hotels, so what did people do? Well, they did have love hotels, actually, right way back then. But oh, did they? The houses, yeah, the the, the they did, in in the town, but the country houses are really big, and uh, they did interesting things. So I was studying marriage, not only marriage, but how people met, and one of the things that used to happen is, and this, uh, there were only old people who remembered it, but it was called yobai, mm, so yeah. night creep, and one of the things that families would do is let the person who had a relationship with someone sleep near the door and the relationship could be carried out by the the person who was visiting would put hachimaki round his head and come to the door and the door would be open and he would come in and his relationship with his proposed partner would begin right there and the one person who remembered and told me the story was an old lady who used to they used to make paper in that village and she was the last person when you make paper you slush it about you hang it up to dry and the last person takes it down and this old lady was the person bringing the paper down so her prospective husband who became her husband um, used to come and visit her at the end of the day when she was bringing the paper down and he was that she called that a yobai 
Mm. So it was already quite late and he would come and visit her and she would be on her own in the shed. So there's one example. There we go. And it was, it was kind of an unspoken... I mean, the family knew what was happening. The family understood these arrangements and they just kind of looked the other way. Is that right? Well, they would have to agree. So if they didn't like the arrangement, that girl would not be near the door. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And the Hachimaki thing was so that people could move about the village without being recognised. So you put something around your head so as not to be recognised if you didn't have success. Fascinating. Where you were yeah, it's good, isn't it? But that's actually a little bit before my time, I should reveal. Oh. <clears throat> it was just that some of the old people remembered. That's still remember. It's like the opposite yeah. of a walk of shame. <laughs> um, it's a walk of shame for a different reason, yeah. yeah. So we've talked about uh, the build-up to marriage and the time before you got there, but, it, but as you were there to study kind of the difference between arranged marriages and love marriages, um, what was it like at the time? What were the ratios like and what were the attitudes about it? Yeah, it was um, It was being written about, it was in the news and in um, people's so studies of sociologists, which are always pretty much talking about what's happening at the time and predicting things which don't necessarily happen. Um, and uh, so love and arranged marriages were said to be about 50-50 when I went there. Now, what actually was really interesting was one of the people in the village, the head of the village, had a daughter who wanted to get married to someone she loved. And she told her father, and her father said, no way, you've got to marry someone I introduce you to. Mm. So she uh, got a relative who was on her side rather than her father's side to introduce her to her potential lover um, as if he were a stranger. And the father then agreed. So... There were cases like that quite often where someone would have someone they wanted to marry and they would arrange a formal meeting. So it seemed like a miai marriage, a formal meeting marriage, mm -hmm. whereas in fact the people had fallen in love. So it was hard. The figures, this is the thing about statistics. Anthropologists hate statistics because they can usually get behind them if they mm -hmm. stay long enough and work out what's going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So if I said 50-50, it would be that many people had a miai, they might have three or four miai. I've got a friend who had 30 miai before he's fixed on someone to right. marry. And, uh, so at that you know, point, he, is it really miai anymore or is it someone that he well, met? Well, it was a miai yeah. each time, but he in the end waited till he fell in love. Right, right. So yeah. he found someone. And irrespective of the reality, was there a perception that one kind of marriage was better or more durable or more longer lasting or whatever than the other? And has that changed? Yeah, that, that whole, the whole system has changed because I don't think Miai are very much practised anymore at all. And there are other ways in which people meet their, their prospective partners. Mm -hmm. um, whether they fall in love or not is entirely up to them. But <clears throat> the uh, meeting arrangements are quite various, including online, of course, like mm -hmm. other people. But what mm -hmm. was your, Bobby, what was your, how did you meet your spouse, your wife? Well, my wife and I um, met at uh, an event, um, and after dating for about a year, we decided we wanted to meet the family, and her father originally uh, refused to meet a foreigner. And I think his concerns were that you know, we wouldn't be able to communicate, or one day I'd take his daughter out of the country and she'd never come back. So we did, a, we did not quite the same thing as, as the woman in your story, but I made the rounds with the distant relatives first and got got the people on my side so that I was an established presence and, and he had kind of the knowledge that 
I wasn't a bad dude was in the ether around him to make him a little bit more receptive. Um, but but I want to ask about the conception of marriage in general, because one of the things that was really interesting in the book was that not only marriage, but also things like deaths and education and all of these different aspects of the life in Kurotsuchi were so tied to this idea of continuing the line of the house. Was marriage done more consciously for the sake of continuing the line of the house in certain situations? I guess that was kind of what my earlier question was, that like, what what, what was the outcome that they were optimizing for in these marriages? Well, first of all, um, the... Uh, <laughs> The most important thing was if they had a family business. So people who were growing chrysanthemums needed to find someone who could help with the work that they did for their son or daughter to marry. And I said son or daughter because if there was no son in the family then and they had a big thriving business, they would bring in a son-in-law to do the business and marry the daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, a very good example when I was there was that there was only one house left making paper and they'd been making the paper in that village. They'd 30 houses used to make paper, and they, it gradually had to um, be cut back till they just had one left. And that house had three daughters. So they searched everywhere to find a husband who could make paper, and they didn't find one. They put all of those women by the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was a granny already, and her <laughs> husband had already died. But um, the girl who uh, married... First, the eldest daughter, her husband came in and he brought land. Mm. And so the deal was made where he brought land and they are now, they're still there. The family's still there. It's still continuing. And they're the most successful chrysanthemum growers in the village. So they gave up the paper and it was very sad. And uh, the BBC made a film about it, actually, which was on schools education in Britain for 10 years. It was a really interesting story because he's Mm. showing the traditional way to make paper. But um, then the other thing is, so so that's the first thing. If you've got a business, you need to continue the business. And people do it all over Japan still. Mm-hmm. So if you've mm-hmm. invested in a hospital or a school, lots of schools and universities are run by families in Japan, private ones, you need to have people who can carry on the line. And uh, that's uh, one of the important factors. So when I was working in another part of Japan, the the hospital that I was working in had statues in front of it of the different family members who'd carried on the line mm. over the years. So it isn't it hasn't hasn't gone away altogether at all. And it has gone away, obviously, with people who live in apartments and don't, you know, have any rel- relations with their relatives back in the country or wherever it was their relatives came from. But there are still a lot of people who are carrying on the line in, in mm. one way or another. So does that mean that just as in the past, people were pretending that an omiyai had happened when it was actually a love marriage? Could the opposite be now true today, that people are kind of meeting someone who they ostensibly are falling in love with, but in the back of their head, they're like, oh, this guy knows how to make bolts. <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't know. I'm not still looking at marriage. I'm sure Bobby knows much more about marriage than I do. But it's true that when I was working there, there were the same situation. If a foreigner wanted to marry a Japanese person, mm-hmm. then the family would at first uh, complain. <clears throat> and that's <laughs> <when> I... <laughs> Those are the rules. <laughs> that's when I... 
But when I was living in Yame, the um, only other foreigner who came there, in practice, except for my husband, and practically the whole year I was there, they rang me up. People rang me up and said, we've got another foreigner in this town. You know, there were no JET teachers, no BET teachers. And I spoke to this person and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I would like to marry my Japanese girlfriend, but the family's complaining. So um, I said, don't worry, because I've met quite a few people like that, and the family will come round. You'll see. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. If it doesn't work out, you can come around my place and just sleep by the door. We'll find you another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even if the family complains at first for six months, a year down the line, they'll eventually get used to you. So I guess marriage is just long-form anthropology. <laughs> Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 111 of Japan by River Cruise. We have one more episode coming out this year, which is going to be our Christmas special. So we'll see you this time next week. Thank you very much to our guest, Joy Henry. Joy, where can our listeners find your books? Oh, just look for An Affair with the Village online and it come, all the possible ways of buying it and comes up. And if you Google Joy Henry, you'll find my other books pop up quite soon too. In <laughs> fact, you'll be sick of seeing them. But An Affair with the Village came out this year, and it tells the secrets behind being an anthropologist, so go for it. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, and thank you very much to Extremist Publishing for sending us a copy of the book to read. If you'd like more information, you can see their website at extremistpublishing.com. We will see you next week for the Christmas special. <laughs>